0: Hello! Welcome to another episode of the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is John Lyons, who joins me to discuss his book, Joy and Fear, The Beatles, Chicago and the 60s. John Lyons is an Associate Professor of History at Juliet Julia College in Illinois, where he teaches British history, US history, world history and Latin American history. His publications include Teachers in Reform, Chicago Public Education, 1929-1970. to 1970. John's book is a riveting look at the polarising nature of the Beatles' phenomenon, and how it transformed a generation through the lens of a singular city in the centre of America. Drawing on historical and contemporary accounts, Joy and Fear brings to life the frenzied excitement of Beatlemania in 60s Chicago, while also illustrating the deep-seated hostility from the establishment toward the Beatles. John Lyons, hello and welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? Hello, Joe. Uh, I'm fine and it's a pleasure to be here. We're here to talk about uh, your book, The Beatles and, and Chicago. We could start in, a, I suppose, an obvious place. Um, Why well, look at Chicago and The Beatles, what was it, do you think, about looking at The Beatles from kind of a local level that we can really gain?
1: Well, I wanted to write a book about the, uh, the American response To the Beatles in the 1960s. Pretty much immediately, it became obvious that uh, to just write a book about the American response would be just too generalized. You know, in the 1960s, still today, but even more in the 1960s, America was such a diverse regional country. And uh, each uh, area had their own traditions and histories and ethnic and racial makeups. They had their own uh, political uh, landscapes. Their own newspapers, TVs, radios, music scenes. So it didn't really make sense to just talk about the American response to the Beatles. I think you had to basically go a little bit more uh, local. But the other reason why I did this, and generally historians have done this for years, they're called community studies. And uh, when you do a community uh, study, you can basically focus in on uh, how the Beatles impacted a certain radio station. Uh, how a um, newspaper responded to the Beatles. You can uh, go into uh, detail about the concerts. So basically you can focus in a lot more than you could in uh, national studies. And what I like about uh, doing a book on uh, the local area is that uh, you can bring out these stories, these details that are hidden in these larger monographs. And so, uh, so therefore, you know, like uh, things like the University of Chicago medical student who spends his summer uh, touring with the Beatles, the uh, 14-year-old girl from St. Louis who ends up at the 1965 Beatles uh, press conference in Chicago asking George Harrison uh, questions, the uh, record store owner in a sleepy suburb in uh, outside uh, Chicago who uh, ends up, set up a club which he moves on the, uh, the cavern and uh, ends up uh, having The Who, Cream, Yardbirds, The Birds, Buffalo Springfield playing there. So all of these sort of like stories, I think, really sort of uh, come from uh, studying uh, the local area. Now, I do want to say, though, when I talk about a community study, I don't mean uh, you kind of put a circle around Chicago and anything that happens outside there you ignore. Uh, It's really about uh, comparing what was happening in Chicago with elsewhere. So it's about bringing the similarities to the Chicago story with elsewhere and also bringing the differences. So there's a lot in the book also about other parts of America, obviously, and also, as you know, about the UK. Now, you're probably saying why Chicago? And the obvious uh, question is because uh, it's a big city. You know, I wanted to study an area with a large population. It was kind of like a laboratory experiment, really. And so what I had was uh, the second largest city in America in the 1960s was Chicago. It is also uh, a place where they had a large black population. And I wanted to study that about uh, the African-American response to the Beatles. And then uh, it also has a large suburban and student population which were also uh, demographics that I wanted to look at. And then I think Chicago in itself is an interesting place. You know, many of the major events that took place in the 60s happened in Chicago. Uh, the uh, civil rights movement, Martin Luther King was based in the city for a while. The Students for Democratic Society were based in Chicago. You had the 1968 Democratic Convention and the police riot. You had the black nationalism was very strong in Chicago. And also uh, the Beatles have a lot of connections to Chicago. You know, the first records that were released in uh, America, released in a on a Chicago record label. The first radio station to play them was probably based in Chicago. The uh, Chicago is the only city besides New York to uh, in the US to uh, have uh, five concerts. They, were, they played in Chicago on all the tours. The 1966 uh, press conference, the Bigger Than Jesus press conference, happened in uh, Chicago. So anyway, so for a number of reasons, I thought Chicago was a great place to do a local study, and I thought it would interest readers, that uh, the history of uh, Chicago. Mm.
0: You talk in the book about the Beatles' initial US success. What do you think were the most important factors behind that?
1: Well, the, uh, the first part of the book, the first chapter, in some ways, maybe surprisingly, was about the Beatles in uh, the UK in 1963. And the reason I wrote that is because I wanted to get uh, a, a grasp about what was Beatlemania. Why, why were the Beatles so successful? And really what I put it down to is that Brian Epstein and the Beatles found a way to package joy and sell it to a wider audience. If you want to say what's the essence of the Beatles and Beatles mania, it's basically exuberant happiness. And they were able to do that and then basically transmit that to a wider audience. And you can see it in so many ways. I mean, uh, today you kind of don't think too much about the name Beatles, but if you look at the name Beatles, you know, it it was such a clever name just to, to, to pick that name. And the first thing it does when you look at it is uh, it brings a smile to your face, the word Beatles. And uh, also what it does is it brings them enormous publicity. You'd be amazed how many headlines were based around the idea of bugs and infestations. So if you look at their music, their music was very exuberant, very happy, very uh, positive. You know, they were great songwriters and musicians and great harmonies, but the, the whole essence of their music was uh, exuberance they didn't really deal so early on in sort of sad songs it was more about happy sort of uh, events and also the music itself was very exuberant and then also uh, pretty obviously the look you know the hair that was another thing that people used to find very uh, amusing at first really you know that it was uh, just crazy that they had this sort of like long hair and then of course their personalities they were very very funny They were very uh, uh, irreverent. Uh, They had a manic sense of humour and also a dry sense of humour. So I think if you add the whole thing together, their music, their appearance, their uh, personalities, I think to sum it up, it was pure joy, exuberant happiness. And the obvious question is, uh, uh, why then did that translate to America? I think the first thing to say is that The reason that they started to become popular in America or began to get noticed in America is because of the mania in Britain. It was nothing to do with the music. If you you look at the newspapers, magazines, TV coverage of the Beatles early on, it was all about those crazy Brits. These Brits were supposed to be so reserved, so well-mannered, and here they were going absolutely crazy over these four mop-headed, guitar-driven louts from Liverpool. And so uh, that's really what all the, the, the coverage was first in the uh, American press. And in terms of when that was, it, it basically happened because uh, if you look at the English coverage of the Beatles, it really is from sort of like September, October, November is when they start, uh, 63, when they start to get national coverage. And that's because they, that, that's the time where they played in the Royal Albert Hall in London in, in uh, September, in the Palladium in October, and then, of course, the Royal Variety Show. And so the London-based, Fleet Street-based newspapers then started to sort of uh, publicise them a lot more, ran headlines on them. And, of course, a lot of the American newspapers had correspondents in London. And so they saw what was happening, and they started to then report back to the Washington Post, the LA Times... Uh, The uh, New York Times, and they start to run small articles there. And so you start to see in in October, November, uh, 63, they're starting to get coverage in the American media. And, of course, that's the same time when uh, Brian Epstein goes over to uh, New York and books the uh, Ed Sullivan Show, gets Capital Radio to uh, release their record. So it's all connected. It's about basically Beatlemania in uh, the U.K., was finally getting coverage in the US. A lot of people uh, put the uh, the Kennedy assassination as a uh, one of the sort of uh, reasons why they became so popular in America. I'm not that convinced by that argument because uh, they were already getting coverage before the assassination. He he was assassinated in uh, November 63 and they were already getting coverage before that. And so uh, I think really in many ways what the uh, the assassination does is it, actually it delays Beatlemania in America because all the papers switched from beginning to talk about the Beatles to talking about the uh, the Kennedy assassination. And so therefore, uh, I think in, in, in many ways, it didn't, it, it wasn't because of uh, Kennedy's assassination that Beatlemania starts to sort of emerge in America. And of course, the other reason is that Beatlemania also took place in Ireland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, And of course, uh, the Kennedy assassination didn't mean as much there as it did in America. So I think that it's a bit of an American-centric view to talk about the Kennedy assassination. I I think it was uh, just the fact that Beatlemania got so much coverage in the press in Britain that it then came to uh, America. Now, the other thing to say about the American experience, though, is that the, uh, the Beatles were lucky in a couple of ways. And one way they were lucky is that they spoke English. And the reason why that's important is pretty obviously because they could then translate their humor, their reverence, and also their music to an American audience. And I always think about uh, this, and Joe, you might be able to help me out here. If you can imagine, they get off that plane in uh, February, was it February the 7th 64? And if you remember, one of the first things they did is they had that press conference. Now, can you imagine if they never spoke English and that they needed a translator, to translate to the reporters, or that they spoke in halting, uh, cut up English. It just wouldn't have had the same sort of uh, reception. And so I think that uh, it really did help them that they spoke English. And the other uh, thing about that is, it is true that not many British artists had uh, hits in the US, I mean, before the Beatles, that's true. But on the other hand, if you look at those that did have hits from outside the US, But most of them came from the UK. Mm. The UK Mm. had more hits on the billboard charts than any other nation. And it was followed by Canada. And again, it's no coincidence, English speaking. Now, the other reason why they were uh, popular is uh, not just because they spoke English, but they were British. And at the time, there was a lot of uh, British coverage in the American press because of uh, Broadway was dominated by British uh, plays. A lot of British films were being very successful, Lawrence of Arabia and Tom Jones, etc. And so uh, they came into a time uh, in America where there was already a, a, a very positive response to, uh, to British culture. And so I think that helped them as well. And then the final reason is they were white. And America in the 60s was a very segregated country. And you just can't imagine four black guys walking off of that plane and getting the same reception that the Beatles got. You know, there's no way that girls in uh, America would have been allowed to put pictures of uh, black uh, musicians on their walls. They wouldn't have been allowed to scream at black musicians. They just would not have got the same response. So I think the Beatles were lucky in many ways that uh, they were able to... uh, uh, or their exuberance, their joy was able to translate to America uh, at first because of the uh, the Beatles, Beatlemania in the UK, and then because they were English, uh, they were part of British culture, and uh, they were white.
0: So to kind of go against that, you do speak in the book about what you refer to as Beatlephobes, mainly conservative old or white male commentators that didn't have too many good things to say about the Beatles. Uh, Do you think this was based around a a general distrust of them, something that was new and and different? Or was there something else at play here? The thing about
1: the Beatles is they did divide opinion. You know, many people loved the Beatles, but uh, many people feared them. They thought that they were bringing cultural changes to America that were undesirable. And in some ways the way that, you know, when you look at sort of Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr today, you are a little bit surprised about, you know, how how could people dislike these such jovial characters, you know, Mm. national treasures. But uh, a lot of people did dislike the Beatles and dislike them intensely. And one of the first groups to uh, dislike them was uh, boys. There's no doubt about it that the the Beatles were a uh, female uh, phenomena. You know, all their early fans were girls or the most exuberant fans were girls. And that was basically because uh, if you look at uh, music in the early 60s, it was made by boys and men and it was consumed by girls. It was directed at a female audience. And so therefore, uh, when the Beatles came along, their music and their persona... Was directed at that female audience, and so therefore, like I say, ninety percent of their fans early on would have been female, and uh, you can see it in the fan clubs, you can see it in the team magazines, and of course, also if you look at what, uh, and I think actually I think this is uh, more so in America actually than in the UK. I think that the, there was more female fans, and also I think they were younger in the US as well. A lot of people commented on that at the concerts that how younger the girls were but uh, boys at the time were very much into sports superheroes and of course astronauts <laughs> and they saw the uh, the beatles as something that was for girls So anyway, so basically, uh, boys uh, were not the biggest of Beatles fans at the beginning. The other group that didn't like the Beatles were people from religious denominations of all all stripes, really. And uh, there's there's a couple of reasons why they were worried about the Beatles. One is, I think they saw these girls. And what they saw was girls that were not enamoured with spiritual matters, but were enamoured with sensual matters and uh, so anyway so I think that worried them but the other thing that worried them was whenever the Beatles gave a uh, an interview about their religious beliefs they used to usually say they were agnostic now to an American audience agnostic meant basically uh, antichrist. and so uh, so therefore I think that you know the the religious denominations were worried about them from the beginning Uh, in terms of the, the the phrase I use in the book cultural traditionalists That's the phrase I use. And these were people that were basically believed in uh, traditional gender relations. They uh, believed that people should be restrained. They uh, believed that there should be a strong emphasis on law and order. And they believed also in a reverence and a respect for authority. And I think these people were worried about the direction that America was going. America was already moving in a more sort of liberal direction, you know, the civil rights movement. Uh, there was already sort of uh, advances in the women's movement. Betty Friedan's uh, book, The Feminine Mystique, was released a year before the Beatles came over. There was already in the charts some songs that were alluding to more sexual matters. Uh, so I think the is already moving in a kind of liberal direction. And these cultural traditionalists were very worried that uh, what they saw from the Beatles uh, symbolized this uh, movement towards a country that they basically didn't want and in terms of in Chicago there was there was three bastions of uh, cultural traditionalism and the first one of those was the um the Catholic Church so Chicago had the the largest Catholic school system uh in the nation and the Catholic Church played a big role in uh even the ear of politicians, you know, they they played a big role in the life of the city. And they used to have priests write in columns in local newspapers. And you can see from these columns that they were very worried about the morals of young America. And especially when they threw themselves at these four long-haired yobs, who, uh, again, they uh, used to always mention as being very feminine. That was what they used to worry about, that the Beatles were... Uh, were they real men? You know that kind of stuff. So you had the, uh, the, the church was one bastion. The second bastion was uh, the Chicago Tribune. Chicago Tribune was the major Republican newspaper in the nation. And it had a large influence uh, outside Chicago. And the, uh, the editor of the paper at the time, W.D. Maxwell, he was no fan of the Beatles. And he made that very clear early on. He was one of the first to write an editorial about the Beatles, before they even came to America in January 64. He called the, uh, the editorial, the headline was Beatles Menace, and he's warning people that they were coming. And then after the uh, Ed Sullivan show, he did another editorial, and this one was uh, headlined Human Dogs." That gives you an idea of the Tribune's uh, response to, uh, and that carried on all the way through the 60s. You know, it was amazing how many editorials were written that basically condemned the, the Beatles. Anyway, and then the third bastion of cultural traditionalism was Mayor Richard Daly. And Mayor Richard Daly was also known as the boss because he was so powerful that he had influence in the uh, Illinois legislature in Springfield, in uh, Congress in Washington, D.C. And he was elected uh, as the family man for a family city in uh, Chicago in 1955 he was still in office when he died in 1976 and if he hadn't died in uh, 1976 he'd still be the mayor that's how popular he was and his popular actually his popularity grew over the 60s because he was so much associated with uh, being against the civil rights movement and the uh, the counterculture etc but anyway they they were the three bastions of what I'd call uh, cultural traditionalism. And then there's a last point to be made. And that is, I do agree that there was a, um, people were very interested in British culture and uh, anti-British feeling was nowhere near as strong in the 60s as it had been previously. But there's no doubt about it, there was a residue of anti-British feeling still in the 60s. And uh, you can just see, if you look at, not that you'd probably ever want to, but if you ever looked at uh, American textbooks from the 1960s, they're full of stories, lurid stories about the Redcoats and about virtually every kid in, America in the American 60s knew that the British burnt down uh, the White House in the War of 1812. So there, there, there was this sort of already, you know, amongst sections of the population that were uh, anti British. And I think it was more so in Chicago because Chicago is very much an Irish city. The Irish, obviously, because of the the population uh, of Ireland, had a, a, a more negative uh, view of British, the British than uh, other places. And so therefore, uh, I think that there was a, a residue of anti-British feeling that also uh, was tied up with this cultural traditionalism. And that's the, the, the title of the book, The Fear Part. These were the people that feared the Beatles.
0: Thankfully, not everyone did hear the Beatles um, because quite a few of them went to watch them play live. So the the, the Beatles first came to Chicago on the first full US tour uh, of September 1964. If you could just tell us a little bit about both their arrival in the city, which the book uh, goes into fascinating depth about, and what you kind of found out about that first concert itself. The
1: 1964 summer North American tour was absolutely crazy. They played uh, 32 shows in 24 cities in the space of less than five weeks. They flew over 20,000 miles on a chartered plane. Everywhere they went, they were followed by huge crowds, followed by reporters and press who wanted interviews, hotels surrounded by fans. It would have been just uh, they couldn't leave their hotels they never went people used to ask them whenever they came to a city oh what do you think of our great city and they used to say well look it looks good from outside the window of a car because that was all they saw so it was a crazy you know tour to begin with the the, the people that organized it really didn't know much about you know America or what kind of tour it was going to be and when they came to Chicago the the person who promoted the uh, the cons all of the concerts in Chicago actually but the 64 one his name was Frank Freed and he was uh, the owner of Triangle Productions. And Frank Freed also didn't really know much about the Beatles or even popular music, to be honest. He was uh, originally a steelworker in uh, Chicago. He'd lost his job and he started to become a promoter of uh, folk music concerts. He was a big uh, fan of folk music. And he was also uh, a socialist. He was uh, a member of the Socialist Workers Party, Trotsky's party. And uh, he was a big supporter of the civil rights movement. And so he was no great fan of sort of like popular music, but just as a job, he put them on. But to give you an idea of, uh, you know, how little he knew, he was offered uh, White Sox Park, the the baseball stadium, which held about 40,000 people. And he turned them down. For the 13,000 international amphitheatre, which was a shed next to the uh, stockyards that used to, uh, or more commonly, uh, held rodeos and livestock shows, and everybody that went to these concerts, whenever anybody used to ask them, "What's your memory of seeing the Beatles in '64?", the first thing they used to say is the smell of the rotting meat. That was coming in from the stockyards next door, and then uh, also Frank. Free, so Frankfurt turned them down basically because uh, the, the forty thousand seat stadium. Because he thought thirteen thousand was enough. He had fifty thousand applicants for tickets, and he was so desperate that he called the Beatles up and he asked them to do a second show. And of course, because their itinerary was so busy, they turned him down. So he ended up. He could have basically played, as he said himself, in Soldier Field. He could have. Promoted them there, but instead they played in this one show in this thirteen thousand capacity uh, amphitheatre, and uh, also to show that he was uh, not really up with the latest pop music. A lot of people at that time, or a lot of promoters at that time, were putting on uh, radio stations to MC the shows. You know, around they'd be uh, all around the shows. He had a middle-aged local newspaper reporter, MCing the shows. So it gives you some sort of idea, really. But anyway, so uh, so. That was Frank Fried. Now, in terms of Mayor Daly, Mayor Daly did not want the Beatles in his city. And he didn't want them in his city because uh, he was very afraid about law and order. That was one of his big points that he used to always uh, emphasise. There'd been a civil rights movement erupting in Chicago in 63, 64 around uh, segregated schools. And there'd been boycotts and demonstrations. There was some kind of uh, racially tinged violence before the uh, concert, uh, before the uh, Beatles came to Chicago in 64. He was also reading newspaper coverage along the way that was telling uh, Mayor Daly that these people are pretty violent and there's going to be trouble. So therefore he didn't want them in his town. So what he wanted was he wanted them in and he wanted them out as quick as possible. So therefore they weren't allowed to stay in any of the hotels they had to uh, fly into the city the day of the concert and fly out the same day onto their next uh, concert in Detroit. And then uh, the other thing he wanted was he didn't want fans to greet them because he was worried about uh, potential violence. And so he wanted to keep their uh, arrival in Chicago secret. He wouldn't say uh, where they were coming in, what airport or also at what time. Now, of course, uh, Triangle Productions press uh, officer leaked the information. And uh, Daly and his administration were outraged. So therefore, what he did was they were supposed to come into O'Hare, which was the major airport in Chicago, and he switched it to uh, Midway and that way, hoping that uh, nobody would know where they were coming into. But again, the press uh, officer uh, leaked that information as well. So therefore, they ended up coming into Chicago at Midway Airport in a field that was uh, as far away as possible you could get from the uh, the airport. So anyway, that, that sort of summed up, really. And in terms of how long were they in Chicago, they were in Chicago for seven hours. They got there at about 4.30. They were out of the city on their plane on the way to Detroit by 11.30. And then in terms of the concert itself, it must have been just unbelievable, because this is the first time that people saw... The Beatles and live in colour. You know, if you think about that, people saw pictures of them in black and white. They're not in colour, and so it must have been a you know an, an amazing experience to actually be there. All the reports that we get was that it was extremely loud, extremely noisy. You know, thirteen thousand kids screaming. Ninety-five percent of them were girls, and uh, the uh, the equipment that the Beatles had was very amateurish. They they never had any uh, monitors hardly any of their drums or instruments were miked. Uh, so they were, you know, it was very difficult to hear them. And then also there was this wonderful thing that the crowds used to do is they used to want to throw things at the Beatles. And this was a, uh, something that was uh, not done to, to hurt the Beatles. This was done as a sign of affection. And so they used to throw uh, things like, you, most people know about the story about jelly beans. In England, they used to show, throw jelly babies, which was soft. In America, they used to show, throw jelly beans, which was kind of like bullets being thrown at them. And then they used to throw, uh, girls at the front used to put their phone numbers on bits of paper and throw them on stage. And then uh, they used to throw things like teddy bears, toys, uh, flashes from cameras. But I think the 64 concert in Chicago really takes the biscuit for this one, because at that concert, somebody threw on stage a plaster hand and also a raw steak. Now, I don't know, you know, a lot of coverage about the Beatles, a lot of people that saw them, used to say that they were very scrawny compared to Americans, you know, there was, so I don't know if somebody thought they were malnourished and so decided to give them a steak, but somebody had bought a raw steak into the amphitheatre, and decided at that moment to throw it on stage. Wow. So that was the uh, the Chicago concert. It was absolutely
0: uh, uh, nuts. It certainly sounds it. Um, you devote a chapter in the book to the Chicago music scene, which I thought was a, a particularly fascinating read, Not not being that au fait with what was kind of going on myself looking at the even the pictures of the groups that you put in the book um they completely ape the Beatles the 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 look and the from what you say the sound um is uh, remarkable really Uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about what the mid-60s Chicago music scene was like
1: yeah in terms of the, the Ed Sullivan show I think that's pivotal here Because uh, when youngsters saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, what they thought was, I can do that. So many kids thought that. They thought that it looked so easy. I could do that. And it looked easy because the Beatles never had any backing singers. They never had any dance moves that they used to use. There was uh, no sort of like singer at the front with the band sort of hidden at the back. Ringo was prominent on the screen. Uh, they looked like they were just having a bit of fun. They were enjoying themselves. It just looks so easy. And so uh, all over America, including Chicago, uh, young kids started to either learn instruments or those that already knew how to play started to form bands. And the age of these uh, people was unbelievable. Many of them were at uh, what you call in England primary school or elementary school uh, in America, 11, 12, 13 years old, as young as that, starting bands. Once they started these bands, a lot of them wanted to mimic the Beatles. So, of course, one of the problems that they immediately had was the hair. <laughs> and so, therefore, a lot of these Beatles, uh, bands, or, uh, bands were emulating the Beatles. They bought wigs. And uh, they used to wear the wigs to make themselves look like the Beatles. But the things that they found uh, when they started to uh, play the music was that uh, it looked easy, but it wasn't. Beatles music, as you know, is very complex. The chords are very uh, unusual. The harmonies are quite amazing. And so a lot of groups in Chicago, they did emulate the Beatles, like you say, and they, they uh, their career was very much based on sounding like the Beatles. And uh, you know, I mentioned a couple probably the most famous is the Buckingham's in Chicago. And the other one is the crying shames. The Buckingham's again, as you can imagine, the name was, uh, it was they were named after a, a fountain in Chicago, but also because it sounded English, which a lot of the groups wanted, they wanted names that were English. And so anyway, so they were the ones that basically emulated the, the Beatles. But uh, like I said, a lot of people found that it was very difficult to, to play that kind of music, but at the very same time that they were forming these bands, the Rolling Stones and the Kinks came to America. And this music seemed a lot easier to play. And so therefore, a lot of the bands in Chicago and elsewhere, they started to emulate the Kinks, the Rolling Stones, the Yardbirds. That was really the music that they uh, started to copy. And again, probably the most famous band in Chicago that did that was the Shadows of Night. And again, their name shadows of night they thought they, they were originally called the shadows and then they had to change it because they found out there's a group in england called that and they picked the word night as in k-n-i-g-h-t because it sounded english and uh, so anyway so they, but the irony of it is that uh, the shadows of night became famous for playing sort of like blues orientated uh, chicago blues orientated rock music so you had this band in in chicago that uh was in the city that gave the world chicago blues but they were introduced to the music by british bands because most of the the, the these uh, people are in the suburbs and they never uh, went into chicago to listen to chicago blues so they actually heard it first in the rolling stones or whatever but anyway so i think that in other words there was two types of groups in chicago there was the ones that tried to sort of like emulate the beatles and then there was the ones that tried to emulate the the stones and the kinks and the um yardbirds and then the other thing about the the music scene in chicago is that it was also a scene and i don't think this is just chicago but i very i noticed it a lot in chicago it was a scene that also incorporated a lot of fee, all female bands and again uh, joe i know you're an expert on a lot of this but uh, i can't really think of many fe- or any all female bands uh, either in the uk or uh, the us before the beatles I know the liver birds in the UK, but I don't think they were before. Were they before at the same
0: time? They were around the same time, yeah.
1: Yeah, and so I don't think that there was actually any. As far. I mean, there was female musicians, obviously, we know that, but there, there wasn't all female bands. And so that's uh, something also that was very striking, I found, is there was a number of these female bands in the Chicago area. And I think what they liked about the Beatles is, again, it looked like it was something they could do, but the Beatles kind of looked feminine.
0: You yeah. know, the long yeah.
1: hair... They were sort of scrawny, like I said, uh the harmonies they were playing sort of girl group music and so uh, and also the music was very directed at females as well. so I think a lot of uh, young women said, yeah, yeah, we can do that and so there was a lot of groups that uh, organized in um, Chicago and also elsewhere that were all female bands, and I think that was one of the other striking things about the 1960s music scene in uh, Chicago and of course because these, these bands then uh, started up they had to have places to play so a number of teen clubs started up all over the uh, the Chicago area and a lot of these were based in the suburbs because a lot of uh, white families left the city and moved to the suburbs mm. and uh, as the kids were growing up and becoming teenagers there wasn't much to do so this was obviously one of the things that they gravitated towards was the music scene that developed in uh, suburban Chicago, so it was quite an amazing m- music scene that developed in uh, Chicago because of the Beatles.
0: You spoke there about the previously, obviously about the 1964 tour that the Beatles undertook. They come back in '65, and then I think more interestingly, they come back in in '66, uh, which uh, is one of the most fascinating kind of moments in their career I think is that that 66 tour for all sorts of reasons you know the the reaction that they were getting only two years on from you know the the 64 tour was different and your book kind of makes that clear if you could just kind of go through what the difference both in the the tour itself and in particular their kind of arrival and time in Chicago was from the 66 tour as compared to the 64 tour.
1: Yeah, I think the 64 tour in many ways it was uh, like I said it was very amateurish. They didn't really know what to expect. Uh, one of the support acts was the uh, the Bill Black combo which was Bill Black was one of the uh, he played bass with uh, Elvis Presley. They played instrumentals which were very much uh, rockabilly. So it was kind of like music that was popular before Uh, the Beatles. Now, in 1966, they had uh, a number of, uh, again, support acts, but one of them was the Remains. And the Remains was a garage band from uh, Boston. And so that gives you an indicate already about that, America was was looking a different place in '66. Also, um, Frank Fried had uh, realised that you needed the uh, radio stations to MC the uh, concerts, so he chose uh, uh, WCFL, which was the the new top forty radio station in Chicago, to to MC the um, uh, the concerts. Now, also, if you look at the audience, it was uh, people noted very uh, much that uh, a lot of the kids now boys had longer hair. So it was two years later, you could grow the hair. And also the girls were wearing uh, mod clothes and miniskirts. And so the audience looked different as well. And then um, in terms of the, uh, the, the the makeup of the audience, a lot more boys. People mm-hmm. commented on this a lot in 66. Now, I couldn't give you a percentage, but if we say in... Uh, well, I am. I am giving you a percentage. What am I saying <laughs> I am going to give you a percentage? I am. In, the, in 64, I'd say it was about 90, 95% girls. By the time you get to uh, 66, I'm going to put a figure about 70 to 80%. So a sizable proportion now were uh, boys. And uh, so the audience looked different and the concerts were handled differently in terms of uh, how Frank Fried saw uh, the Beatles. In terms of uh, America itself, America was also a different place. And one of the things that was very striking about America in 66 is there was a rising tide of conservatism. And you can see that in a number of ways. You can see they just had midterm elections uh, for Congress. And in both the House and the Senate, the Republicans made gains. In uh, Illinois, for the first time, the Republicans, uh, not for the the first time since the 20s, the the Republicans dominated both houses of the uh, Assembly. In uh, California, there was a uh, governor who was just going to get elected, and that was Ronald Reagan. So the country was moving in a conservative direction. And, of course, nothing exemplified this more than the uh, the bigger than Jesus story. And that's the one where uh, the Evening Standard did an interview with, uh, in London, did an interview with John Lennon, and he made comments about the uh, decline in the popularity of uh, the Christian church in the UK. That was finally picked up by Datebook, a teen magazine in uh, America. And when they ran the story, it was picked up by a couple of DJs in Alabama in the South. And they ran with the story. That was basically the, the the major event that was uh, happening just as the Beatles were coming to uh, America. This uh, attitude that uh, John Lennon had. uh, Now the thing about this story is it's, it's often reported as something that uh, was confined to the South. It was something that uh, was uh, just a small part of the country. But that's not the case. If you look at local newspapers in America in the 60s, you'll notice that there was bonfires all over America where they used to burn Beatles records and merchandise. There was boycotts all over the country. It wasn't just in the South. It was also in all parts of uh, America. Also, uh, politicians in places like Pennsylvania, Massachusetts and uh, Michigan tried to get the Beatles banned. They wanted their concerts to be uh, stopped. Also, uh, I went to, um, to look at the, the date book has got a lovely uh, archive. The, the owner was Art Unger and he kept an archive. Anyway, I looked at the archive and there was a lot of uh, letters that were obviously sent to date book from people, some that supported Datebook and said they did a good thing by uh, running the articles, but a lot of people that are obviously very critical of them and critical of uh, Lenin. And again, it's very noticeable that they're not from people from the South. Obviously, some of them are, but many of them from places like Illinois, New York, Michigan, California, all over. So anyway, the, the point I try to make is that this uproar about Lenin, it was nationwide. It wasn't something that just happened in uh, the South, and so therefore, that's the context, the background to the Beatles coming to uh, Chicago in, in uh, '66. And when they came to Chicago, there was also something else happening, and that was when Martin Luther King was in Chicago, and he was organising demonstrations through the um, the southwest side of the city to desegregate housing. So you can just imagine a lot of people are telling the Beatles, "Don't come to America." because they were entering a place where you had the long, hot summer. There was rising violence in the cities. The civil rights movement was happening. And then there was this bigger than Jesus controversy. And so that was the background. And of course, as we all know, he ended up uh, having to give, he actually gave two press conferences in uh, Chicago where he had to apologize for basically his uh, statement that he made. That was, a, it was a, you know, enormously frightening the Chicago concert um, did sell out. Most of the, I think all of them actually, or most of the, the, the stops and the tour did not. But the only reason the uh, concert in, uh, he did, they did two concerts in Chicago in 66. The only reason it sold out is because Frank Freed gave tickets away. You know, in 64, tickets were enormously difficult to come by. In 66, that was not the case. And I think it did show about uh, how the popularity of the Beatles really had been hit by uh, this rising tide of conservatism and especially the Bigger Than Jesus uh, controversy.
0: So to conclude our conversation, in the final chapters of your book, you talk about the Beatles' breakup uh, and the kind of public uh, and media reaction to it. It's quite an eye-opener, really, because... Obviously, you know there is footage that that we've seen of, especially in the UK, mainly of you know of girls crying in the street when Paul gets married, etc. So they still, you know, they still resonated with with people greatly. But in the book, you you kind of illustrate that certainly in 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 America there was more of a sense of indifference to the Beatles breaking up, partly because. I suppose, you know, they kind of thought they would get back together again anyway. It wasn't going to be a permanent thing. And partly because they'd been around by that point for, you know, a whole six years, which sounds like a short period of time, but in the 60s, six years was much longer than it kind of feels now. So if you could just just talk about this idea of indifference um, that the Beatles split kind of elicited from from people.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I started to do... uh... You know to write the book and do my research you know I, I i obviously thought what you were kind of thinking is that when paul announces that he's leaving the band or at least that's how it's perceived that he's leaving the band and it gets that front page in the daily mirror you know the front page headline paul quits uh, i kind of thought and you find it in most books people say headlines all front page headlines all over the world you know that's a common uh, phrase that you see written in the books about the breakup of the Beatles. But anyway, in terms of in America, the point is that uh, I started to then look through the newspapers. And you know what? I started on page one and then two and three, and I couldn't find any coverage. And I finally eventually found coverage of the breakup on page 15 in a little article that says uh, Paul quits Beatles. I started to look at more newspapers. So this was in Chicago first. Then I started to look at other newspapers elsewhere. And it's the same story. The, pa- the, the story is very much buried in the uh, newspapers. If it ever did get a uh, front page, it was never the top front page headline. It was somewhere buried down below with more interesting stories at the top. So that really surprised me. So obviously I want to find out why. And the obvious first thing you say is, well, there were so many rumors of the Beatles breaking up down the years. You know, it could be just that they thought this was another rumor mm. or uh, it could be that it wasn't that clear. About uh, leaving uh, the Beatles, he kind of uh, was—he left it slightly open. But of course, the, the headline in the Mirror is what all these other newspapers were following, and that headline did say he quit. But anyway, so you know, you could argue that, but I think there was something deeper, and I think certainly in America, one of the issues was that the Beatles gave up touring in '66. They uh, they never came back to America uh, until they became uh, solo artists to uh, to play. And what happened in that four years? And I think the music scene changed drastically. And one of the major things that happened is live shows. You know, I was saying to you about uh, how in 64, they had uh, no mics. There was no light show, no monitors. That all changed in, in the late 60s because of groups like Cream or artists like Hendrix. And also the new kids on the block that were really taking advantage of these new technological advances in uh, music or live shows, and that was groups like uh, Led Zeppelin, The Who, and of course the Rolling Stones. You know, the 1969 Rolling Stones uh, tour was really the first modern concert tour where they had their own lighting, their own stage, their own sound equipment. They were uh, hundreds of people traveling with them. And so, um, and also not only that, but also uh, festivals had come to America and of course Monterey and Woodstock and Altamont we all know about but there was festivals all over America you know that didn't get as much uh, publicity and so therefore there was this new rock hierarchy that had come on the scene since the Beatles uh, stopped uh, touring and I think that did uh, supersede uh, the Beatles. The Beatles were still there still uh, producing records but they couldn't now uh, compete with these groups that were now making a reputation on these live shows. And so I think that, that that plays a part in the fact that people were a little bit more indifferent about the Beatles, they still liked them, but they were not now part of this new hierarchy that was coming in. And also, even if you just look at the records that have been uh, released in 1969, it is quite amazing, really, that groups like uh, Tommy, you know, the, the, the Who record, the rock opera, uh, King Crimson, uh, Progressive Rock, Neil Young, Crosby, Stills and Nash, the singer songwriter, uh, in early 1970, Black Sabbath and heavy metal. So, all of these sort of like genres of music were coming to the fore in 1969 just as the Beatles were breaking up. And I think that is also something that meant that the Beatles were not quite part of that uh, rock hierarchy. So, anyway, so I do think that that plays a part. But there is another reason. And the other reason why I think that the, their popular, popularity had waned. I'm not trying to say they were unpopular by any stretch of the imagination, but I think their they, they popularity had waned. And that was because their association with the counterculture. The Beatles were uh, pacifists. They weren't just against the Vietnam War. They were against all wars. And as we know, John Lennon made a p- very public statements about that and public exhibitions. They weren't just now agnostic towards Christianity. They were adopting Hindu beliefs. They were... Uh, taking part in practices that nobody could even spell in the 1960s never mind knew what it was transdental meditation. (laughs) Uh, They were also uh, involved in uh, drugs pretty obviously I mean you didn't have to be a genius to to work that out Paul admitted it they they wanted marijuana to be uh, legalized Uh, it's littered through their songs. They were also seen as being relatively uh, promiscuous uh, even early on, and that was because uh, the, the, they took a lot of headlines in America because they used to go on uh, va- on holidays, vacations with their girlfriends. And, of course, this was a no-no in uh, amongst a lot of people. And then, of course, Lenin had left his wife and was associated with Yoko. So they were very much associated with the counterculture. And in 1960s America, the counterculture was very unpopular. You know, we might think today that uh, these hippies are so cute, but they were not seen as cute in the 1960s. And so, uh, so therefore, because the Beatles became so associated with the counterculture, I think that also did uh, hurt their popularity, especially amongst those sort of parents that previously paid for their 15-year-old girl to go and see the Beatles in the concert. They were now less likely to be uh, enamoured with these long-haired hippies who were uh, preaching uh, promiscuity, drugs, pacifism, etc. So I do, I I think, yes, I think the Beatles were still popular, but uh, by the time they broke up, I do think that their popularity had waned.
0: Well, it's been great fun talking to you, John. Uh, I think the the books uh, are really eye-opening account of uh, the Beatles uh, both in America and specifically in in Chicago um and yes yeah, some of the um, some of the eye-watering stories of those tours uh, is always entertaining to read so uh, I just want to thank you so much for for your time with us today.